Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Nir Ayal about his book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir Ayal writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He founded two tech companies since 2003, and taught at the Un- at Stanford University in California. Nir Ayal, welcome to the show. Thanks, Renee. Great to be here. Before we get into your book, which is extremely interesting, timely, and I imagine useful, uh, tell us a little about yourself. Sure. So I'm what you call a behavioral designer, meaning I use consumer psychology and uh, behavioral economics to build the kind of products that help people build healthy habits in their life. Uh, So I work with companies in the healthcare space, in uh, financial services, uh, medical devices, all kinds of products that require a habit in order to uh, be efficacious. So uh, if you think about, you know, patient adherence to medication or getting someone to use an exercise app or to track their nutrition or uh, building an educational product online. So those are the kind of companies that I work with in my consulting practice and uh, is the basis of a class I taught at Stanford at the Graduate School of Business as well as the design school there. And then uh, more recently, I started getting into the other side of, you know, not only how do we build good habits, but then uh, about five years ago, I started to dive into this uh, flip side of the coin around how do we break bad habits. And so that led me on this journey to ask this question around, you know, why do we do things that are against our best interests? Why do we have these bad habits? And how can we avoid getting distracted from what we want to do in life? Well, your book is really a a testament to the human ability to change perspective. Uh, I I think that's fascinating. So tell us about how you went from your last book, which was about how to build online products that keep us hooked, to your latest, Indistractable. Yeah, so it really was, you know, taking the same expertise that I'd collected, uh, understanding how to build these type of products. Remember, you know, when when I started writing uh, my first book, Hooked, uh, this was back in 2012. And the complaint around technology was very different from the complaint we hear today. Uh, the complaint back then was that nobody understood how to use technology, right? That, that uh, before the iPhone and the iPad and, and all of these amazing gadgets we, we have with us today, you, you remember the days when people said, oh, only the geeks and the nerds can understand how to use technology, right? This is not for the everyday person. This is only for, you know, you have to be a, a PhD to understand how to use a computer, and that's that was kind of everybody's gripe back then was that we you know it, it was elitist it was only something that only the very educated who understood how to use computers could use them and so w- there was this rallying cry for what we call usability and so this this whole field of um uh, design thinking and uh, user experience and and all these fields kind of uh took on the challenge and i was part of that movement to help make these type of technologies uh 
better at adapting to user behavior in such a way that people would actually want to use them as opposed to feeling like they have to use them. And I think that's still the challenge. The challenge these days for most products is that most products, particularly the the technology products we use, they don't suck us in the way that Facebook or Twitter might suck us in. No, they just suck, right? <laughs> that, that when we think about, you know, enterprise software, nobody's getting addicted to enterprise software. Nobody's getting addicted to educational software. Uh, and so my question was, why not, right? What, what if we could use the same psychology that uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and all these companies use to get people hooked? You know, what I wanted to do with my book was to steal those secrets, and make them available to any kind of product that is trying to build a good habit in people's lives. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, Companies like uh, Fitbod get people hooked to exercising in the gym. Kahoot is a company that used the hook model to get kids hooked to in-classroom learning. Uh, I've worked with the New York Times to get people hooked to reading the news every day. So we can use these same techniques, I believe, for good. Uh, Now, what, what led me to write Indistractable was that I found in my own life that uh, some of this technology was was so pervasive and so persuasive that many times I found myself getting distracted. Uh, I remember one incident with my daughter. We we had this afternoon together, and we had this this day plan where we could just spend time together as a daddy and daughter. And we even had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could play together. And uh, there was this one question in the book that I'll never forget. The question in the book was, if you could have any superpower what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim, but I don't remember what my daughter said. Because in that moment, I was distracted by my phone. And I was looking at some email or I don't know, something on social media, I don't even remember what I was looking at, but I was not paying attention to my daughter. And she got the message and uh, left the room and decided to go play with a toy outside instead. And uh, I, by the time I kind of understood what was going on, I looked up for my phone and, and she was gone. And that's when I realized that this was something I had to address, that uh, it wasn't just happening in my relationship with my daughter, but I found in many areas of my life, uh, I wasn't doing what I said I would do. And I, I think many people find themselves in that circumstance, right? We, we say we're going to exercise, but we don't. We say we're going to eat right, we don't. We say we're going to not procrastinate, we're going to do that big project we've been putting off, but we don't. Uh, we say we're going to be fully present with people we love, but our minds are elsewhere. So this is a, this is a reoccurring problem. And so the more I started diving into this problem, the more I I learned that it's not a new problem. <laughs> that while my gut reaction was to blame the phone in my hand for making me distracted from my daughter, the more I dug into this problem, I found that actually distraction has been with us forever. Uh, in fact, Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. He talked about what he called akrasia, this tendency that we all have to do things against our better interests. And, uh, you know, that was 2,500 years before the iPhone. (laughs) And so it turns out this is not a new problem. And in fact, I think that blaming the distraction, whether in this generation, it's, you know, iPhone and, and, and Facebook, but if you look at every generation has had its mind-melting technology that people have a moral panic over, whether it's, you know, television or video games or the radio, the novel, uh, all of these things created moral panics that uh, people said, you know, that these were, these things were, were taking over our brains or hijacking our minds. And it's exactly the same rhetoric we hear today. And it turns out, I think, I think it actually backfires to have that attitude because it's very disempowering, right? When we say the technology is addicting everyone, that it's hijacking our brain, what we're doing is is saying it's their fault, 
right? And, and, and so there's two categories of people, I think, out there. There are what we call the blamers. The blamers say, oh, it's the, it's the device that's doing it to me. It's the distraction that's doing it to me. Then there are the shamers. And this is the category I used to fall in. The shamers say, oh, you see, there's something wrong with me. I'm lazy. I'm no good. I must be dysfunctional. There must be something wrong with me. And then, you know, the, those, those two categories are not very good, right? They both actually make the problem worse, I believe. The, the, the right way to be, I think, is not to be a blamer or a shamer, but to be what we call a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility by acknowledging that this isn't your fault, right? You didn't invent the iPhone. You didn't invent Facebook. You didn't invent email. You didn't invent all these potential distractions. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility, that these technologies are not going away. And in fact, we don't want them to go away. They're wonderful. We can use them to our advantage. So the idea here is how do we get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us? We had that challenge uh, with the invention of fire as well. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. right. With, with any but, tool, right? A, a hammer right. can be used to build a house or can be used to bash someone's head in. Uh, it, it's really yeah. about how we use it. But, but I will acknowledge that I think for many people, myself included, we haven't learned, we haven't adapted quickly enough to learn how to put this technology and these potential distractions in their place yet. Well, you make the case, which is, at least as of today, contrary to conventional thinking, that distraction starts from within, with an inner feeling of discomfort. That, yes, it's not the device's fault, it, but it, it has to do, it's not your fault in that you're lazy or just you would prefer to eat ice cream instead of a salad. Uh, but it, it's a feeling of discomfort from within. So explain your argument and its supporting evidence. Sure. So to understand what distraction is, we have to understand what distraction is not. What is the opposite of distraction? And most people, if you ask them what is the opposite of distraction, they'll tell you it's focus. And, and I don't agree. I think the opposite of distraction is not focus. If you look at the entomology of the word, the, the opposite of distraction is traction that traction and distraction both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. So if you sit down at your desk and you say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm, gonna, I'm going to finally finish that presentation. I'm going to do the thing that I, I've been putting off. I'm finally going to get to work and do that thing right after I check email. You know, this happens to many people. They, this is called pseudo work. We, we, we do something that feels productive, right? Email is something I have to do anyway at some point, right? It kind of feels productive. And so we do that as opposed to the thing we plan to do. And I argue that that is just as much of a distraction. Why? Because when we do those things that we didn't plan to do, by definition, they are distractions. They are taking us away from what we plan to do. And most perniciously, we are prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. And that is very destructive. That's why we keep treading on this treadmill when running and running and not getting anywhere is because we allow the, the urgent to take the place of the important. So anything can be a distraction. It's not, it's not the obvious things that tend to distraction. It's not, you know, watching YouTube videos or reading the comics or, you know, watching sports. That's kind of an obvious pastime or diversion. It's not necessarily a distraction. The most pernicious distractions are the ones we think are productive, right? I'm just, I'm just checking email real quick <laughs> as opposed to doing that big project you've been putting off. So just as anything can be a distraction, anything can be traction. So if you plan your time, 
enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with using Facebook or uh, playing a video game or watching a movie or Netflix or watching sports. What's the difference actually between playing Candy Crush and playing and watching three hours of football on TV? There's no difference. There, there's no moral hierarchy here. If you plan to spend your time in a certain way, that's great. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So my argument is that anything that you plan for that's in accordance with your values and on your schedule as opposed to on some app maker's schedule or your colleague's schedule, your boss's schedule, anything that you plan to do with your time is traction. Enjoy it. Okay, so we've got traction. We've got distraction. Now, remember, both words end in the word action. What prompts us to action? What prompts human behavior? Two things. There are two types of triggers. There are what we call external triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, and rings. All of these things in our environment that prompt us to either traction or distraction. Now, that's kind of the usual suspects, right? That's what everybody blames for getting us distracted. We say, oh, my iPhone distracted me or this distracted me. That's what we tend to blame. And those do account for some distractions. But if we actually look at what tends to be the, the number one cause of distraction is not the external triggers. It's not the things that happen outside of us. But rather, if you count up the number of distractions per day, the root cause of these distractions, for the most part, are what we call the internal triggers. Internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. And so this is the most important fundamental truth when it comes to distraction, is that most distraction starts from within. Why? Because all human behavior starts from within. Right? The way the brain gets us to act is through what's called the homeostatic response. It's by creating some kind of uncomfortable emotional state that gets us to do something, gets us to act. Now, most people will, will, will find a different model. Most people will tell you it's about carrots and sticks. This comes from Freud. Freud tells us that you know, this is called the pleasure principle, that everything we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And that's what we observe. But in fact, neurologically, that is not true. That neurologically speaking, the root cause of human motivation, all human motivation, everything we do, is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but in fact, neurologically speaking, it's about one thing, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. All human behavior, even the pursuit of pleasure, right? Wanting something, craving, desire, lusting. There's a reason we say love hurts, because neurologically, that is exactly what's going on. The brain has two systems. We have what's called the liking system and the wanting system. The liking system encodes pleasurable sensations into memory so that the wanting system can retrieve those memories and prod us through discomfort to go get that pleasure again. Remember, the brain doesn't do what feels good. The brain does what felt good. And so what this all means, if the root cause of all human behavior is a desire to escape discomfort. And by the way, we, we, this is obvious. If you want a really good example, think about this physiologically. If you go outside and it's cold, what do you do? That's uncomfortable. You put on a jacket. If you come back inside, now it's too hot. That's not comfortable. You take it off. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs, you eat. And when you're, you're stuffed, oh, you ate too much. That doesn't feel good. You stop eating. So clearly this makes total sense physiologically. Now think about it psychologically. Where do people go when they're feeling lonely? They check Facebook. Where do they go when they're feeling uncertain? Google. Where do you go when you feel bored? Oh, man, you get the news. You got uh, stock prices, sports scores, Reddit, Pinterest. All of these products and services cater to these uncomfortable emotional sensations. So the big revelation here is 
if all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. That if we are for some reason not doing what we say we're going to do, you know, Plato's age old question from 2,500 years ago of why don't we do what we say we're going to do? The answer is because we are trying to escape discomfort in a way that leads us towards distraction rather than traction. And the good news is we can change that. We can learn to do what I call mastering these internal triggers so that we respond to them in a healthier fashion. Now, when you talk about time management being pain management, it's a very stark chapter heading. And when I think about it, the listeners to this podcast and the readers of your book are the most comfortable, affluent, safest, best-fed people in history. What causes them that much discomfort that they can't manage their time? Oh, that's, that's such a great question. So it turns out that our, evolutionarily, our evolutionary biology uh, conspires against us in many ways. That I argue that discomfort is completely normal and natural. And in fact, we should thank our ancestors for giving us this, this hereditary uh, uh, gift of discomfort. That unfortunately, I think we have been fed by the, primarily by the self-help industry that feeling bad is bad. That somehow if we are uncomfortable, dissatisfied, then that is something that we have to fix. Something must be wrong with us. We have to medicate that away or you know, change our lifestyle in order to not feel bad. And I argue that, that discomfort is an evolutionary gift. That Think about it. From an evolutionary basis, you wouldn't want homo sapiens to be happy all the time. Imagine if there was a tribe of people somewhere in evolutionary history in our 200,000 years as a species, if there was ever a tribe of people who somehow were happy all the time, you know, always contented, well, I guarantee you that our ancestors would have killed and eaten them right? because sure. it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary basis to be satisfied. We want this, this craving, this desire, this wanting for more. This is what helps perpetuate the species. This is what helps us create life-changing medication. It helps us overturn despots. It helps us reach for the stars. We can't do that without our craving for more. With, we are designed for perpetual disquietude. And, and so the message I want to get out there is that feeling bad isn't bad. It's normal. It's how we respond to those feelings that matter. Do we respond to them in a way that is distracting by just escaping that sensation, getting out of our heads, whether that's with too much booze, too much TV, too much work, whatever it is to get out of our heads so that we don't have to deal with real life. Well, that's clearly distraction. Or we can leverage that discomfort towards traction, towards the things in life that help us live out our values, that help us do what it is we really want to do with our time. Now, there was a time when uh, the advice that would be given to someone who was complaining about not accomplishing what they set out to do or not being able to do what they said they would do for an hour or a day would be build up your willpower. Willpower is the way to do it. You make yourself focus on that. Why is willpower no match for habits? Yeah, I'm not a fan of willpower. I'm not a fan of willpower or self-control or self-discipline. In fact, all those three words send shivers down my spine. So I used to be clinically obese. 
I no longer am. Uh, but for, for many years, you know, what I was told uh, by my Jewish grandma uh, when I was, when I was little, she said, eat more, you're too skinny. And then at one point she says, you're too fat, stop eating so much. <laughs> um, and, 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 and the, you know, when I, when it was difficult for me, when I couldn't stop eating too much, it was, well, just use some self-control, use some willpower. And the fact is willpower is not what we want to rely upon. That willpower in the moment has been shown in many, many experiments to not be a good fallback. That, you know, if the, if the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, you're going to eat it. If the cigarette is lit and in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If the cell phone is on your nightstand and you sleep with it as close as you sleep with your with your lover, you're going to pick it up first thing in the morning. Of course, they're going to win. They're going to get you. It's too late. So the idea here is to not rely upon willpower, self-control, and, and, and self-discipline. The idea here is to rely upon a system. That's what being indistractable is all about. It's these four parts, these four steps that are actually not that difficult. Anyone can do this. That by creating a system, what we do is we, we plan ahead. We use one of the, the greatest gifts that evolution has given us, which is the ability to see into the future, right? One thing that the human species can do better than any other animal on the face of the earth is that we can predict what is going to happen with greater fidelity than any other animal on the face of the earth. And so that's why if there's one mantra, one takeaway from this book that I want everyone to remember and write down. It's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Let me say that again. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Meaning, if we plan ahead, if we take steps now to prevent getting distracted in the future, there is no distraction that we can't overcome. And it turns out that a lot of our thinking about willpower can actually backfire. That uh, there's, a, there's a bit of folk psychology out there that goes something like this, that you know, at the end of the day, we run out of willpower. That willpower is a depletable resource. That it runs out like gas in a gas tank. And in fact, there was a there was a name for this in the psychology community. It was called ego depletion. And there were some studies that actually showed uh, that ego depletion was a real thing. Uh, and there was some magical properties of of ego depletion. Some psychologists found that if you gave people uh, lemonade sweetened with sugar, that their ego that their willpower could be replenished somehow. But it turns out that this was a little bit of, of, of magic psychology. This wasn't real, that in fact, other studies that tried to replicate these studies did not replicate the results. And so it looks like ego depletion doesn't really exist, except in one case, that there is one group of people, this is the work of Carol Dweck from Stanford. She found that ego depletion, this idea that willpower runs out like gas in a gas tank. And so, by the way, I used to do this to myself all the time. I mean, everything I'm talking about right here, I was patient zero, right? I used to do all this stuff. I wrote the book for me first and foremost. And in this case, I would come home from work and I would say, oh, I've had such a rough day. I, you know, I, I, I can't anymore. I'm, I'm spent. Give me that Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix here for a few hours because I've got no willpower left. That's how it would manifest in my life. Oh, not, I didn't even and know I deserve it. That seems <laughs> right. Part of that too, right? Yeah. Exactly. I deserve it. <laughs> right. And and so what Carol Dweck found was that this idea that willpower runs out like gas in a gas tank. It is not true, except for one group of people. The group of people who do exhibit ego depletion, who do have willpower run out like gas in a gas tank, are only the people who believe in ego depletion. That's it. <laughs> so if you're the kind of person who believes that they are spent, it becomes so. And that's why this current rhetoric 
around why technology is hijacking your brain, it's addicting you, and it's doing this and it's doing that. That's why this is so pernicious because when we believe it to be true, it becomes true. We are actually giving these tech companies a gift when we say, oh, you see my children, they're acting so crazy, it's the video games. Oh, you see, I can't stop checking my Facebook account, it's the algorithms. When we do that, we are giving up control. And we are doing what's called learned helplessness. We are basically saying, well, there's nothing I can do about it, so we don't even try. Just like the people who believed that their willpower was limited, and so they acted in accordance with their beliefs. And, and in the context of your faith in people's ability to predict and plan and have forethought, uh, you present a, a chapter with a heavy stress on scheduling what you call time boxing, committed to a very detailed schedule once it's set. Uh, do you want to say something about the schedule? I, I, I have some questions about it, but sure. explain it. Absolutely. So the, the second step, so after we have mastered the internal triggers, and we just touched on the tip of the iceberg, there's a lot more we can do in terms of mastering these internal triggers. We can reimagine the task, reimagine our temperament, uh, uh, reimagine the triggers. There's a lot we can do that I talk about in the first step. The second step is to do what's called uh, making time for traction. So we talked about traction as the opposite of distraction. And so what we want to do in the second step is to plan our time because you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So I, I, I met with a lot of people in the past five years when I, when I did the research for this book, and I talked to people who really struggle with distraction and couldn't get anything done and complained to me about how, you know, the, uh, fate, there's this going on at work and the kids want this and the husband wants this and the wife wants that and the boss says this, and they just couldn't concentrate and they couldn't get anything done. And I said, wow, that's, that's really tough. I'm really sorry to hear that. Can I see your schedule? Can I see what it was that you got distracted from? And nine times out of 10, they would show me their phone. They would show me their calendar. And, oh, look, there's nothing on it. <laughs> Just white space, right? Blank time. And so the fact is, if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. Your boss, your kids, your spouse, the news, something is going to eat up that time if you don't decide what you want to do with that time in advance. It turns out that two-thirds of people don't plan their day. I mean, think about how crazy this is. You know, we guard our money in banks. We put it in expensive vaults to keep it safe. We, we have security systems on our home. We have alarms on our car to protect our stuff. Our stuff is so valuable. But our time, yeah, anybody can just come and take it as much as you want. And so that's, if, if distraction is a problem for you, this is a very important second step. After we master the internal triggers, we have to plan our day in accordance with our values. And so I teach people how to do what's called time boxing. And there's a, a link I can give you. I built this free tool. Anyone can use it. You, you know, it's totally free. You don't even have to sign up for anything. The idea is that you want to plan what your ideal week looks like. And this takes about 15 minutes to do. And you plan that week in accordance with your values. The idea here is I'm not going to tell you what your values should be. That's for you to decide. But the idea is that you should be able to look at your calendar. And, and, and see what your values are. I call this turning your values into time. So if taking care of yourself is important, your mental health, your physical health, uh, do you have time for reading, for exercise, for whatever it is that you find meditating, prayer, whatever it is that you think is important to you, do you have that time on your schedule? It's not just gonna happen. If friends are important to you, family, relationships, is that time on your calendar? Uh, then you have the work domain. You know, many people these days, 
they're just constantly reacting to what's coming at them, whether they're reacting to emails or notifications or Slack messages or meetings. They're just reacting all day and they have no time for reflection. And that's because they don't have that time for reflection planned in their calendar. So we want to make time for traction in our day. And then what we what we need to do next is to synchronize our schedules. So we need to t- share those schedules with the stakeholders in our life. So with, with in my household, my wife and I, once a week on Sunday evenings, we have time in our schedule to do this. We sit down and we review the week ahead. It takes us 15 minutes. Uh, I recommend for employees and employers to sit down once a week, 15 minutes, look at the week ahead so that we can prioritize what we are doing with our time and to make sure that for the various stakeholders in our, our lives, that we are living up to our commitments in those various domains of our life. What would you say are the benefits of time boxing as opposed to what most people use if they use anything, which is a to-do list? Yeah. So so there's what, what I call the myth of the to-do list. The myth of the to-do list says, and this is kind of what the many people out there believe, is that you know if you write down what you want to do in your day on a to-do list, then all that stuff will magically get done somehow. And uh, you and I both know that that's not true. That's a fairy tale. <laughs> because if you're anything like I used to be, and this would happen day after day, you know, 90% of my to-do list would just get recycled from one day to the next, to the next, to the next. Right. So Paula Coelho said that a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. And this is what we're doing. We have decided to get distracted day after day after day. I mean, if this is you, and by the way, this was me, we have decided to keep failing day after day. And and so the punishment, the price for our sins is this horrible feeling that I used to feel every day of, you know, I would, I would have a very productive day and I'd, I'd tick off five things on my to-do list. And at the end of the day, I'd look at my to-do list and I still have 95 more things to do that I didn't accomplish. And so every day when I would go home, it was this endless barrage of still more to do, never done, always busy, 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 never done. And it turns out that that feeling, remember earlier we talked about how all human behavior is done from a desire to escape discomfort. Well, many times when we have this massive to-do list of things that we don't ever seem to get to the bottom of, to get to to, to the end of. Well, that creates this feeling of hopelessness, of a lack of agency and control. And guess what we do when we feel that negative feeling, when we feel that uncomfortable state of not feeling in control of a lack of agency? We look for escape. So instead of even just tacking, you know, ticking off those things on our massive to-do list, which is what we should do, you would think, oh, the more you have to do, the more you'll do it. No, we do the opposite. The more you have to do, the more you want to escape doing it. And so this is what I would do. When I, on, on these days when I had so much to do, I'd say, oh, okay, I'll get to it tomorrow. Let me watch some TV. And so instead, what I propose, instead of the to-do list, which is all based on output, right? Your to-do list is just output. It's what you want to get done. If you, if you went to a baker and said, hey, look, I need 100 loaves of bread. Can you make me 100 loaves of bread? The baker would say, no problem. I'm going to need flour. I'm going to need sugar. I'm going to need salt. I'm going to need yeast. Where's the inputs? Okay, that's very clear in a, in a labor type job. When it comes to knowledge work, what is our input exactly? Our input isn't flour and yeast. Our input is time. But imagine how ridiculous it would be if we went to the baker and we said, I need 100 loaves of bread. I'm not going to give you any of that stuff to make it though, okay? No, the baker would say, that's ridiculous. I can't do it. And so why do we expect knowledge workers, including ourselves, to crank out all this output without planning the input? So instead of time boxing, instead of using a to-do list, we use what's called a time box calendar. We put what we want to spend our time doing on our calendar, irrespective of the output, believe it or not. 
So we don't put finish this task. We put work on this task without interruption for X number of minutes. That should be the only goal. Your calendar should say work on this without interruption for one hour, an hour and a half, 30 minutes, whatever it is you want to do. Work on that task without interruption. That should be the only goal. Why is that such a different way of doing things? Because then at the end of your day, you will get this amazingly pleasurable feeling of, of, of living your life, of, of executing your day in accordance with what you wanted to do with your time. And you can plan time at the end of your day or whenever you'd like to do what you really want to do without guilt. So that when you leave work, you don't have this massive to-do list of things that you didn't accomplish. You look back at your day and you know, and you say, oh, I did exactly what I wanted to do because my only goal was to spend my time doing it. And at the end of the day, if you want an hour for Facebook or watching television or whatever you want, plan that time in your day to enjoy that time and you can enjoy it without regret, without any guilt, because that is exactly what you wanted to do with your time. Where is there room for spontaneity in a time-boxed week? Sure, all over the place. It's called planned spontaneity. It sounds like an oxymoron, uh, but it's not. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's, so here's, here's what planned spontaneity looks like. So this weekend, uh, I'm spending time with my family, with my wife and my daughter. And we have a big old block of time, three hours of planned spontaneity. What does that mean? It means for three hours, I will be spending time with my wife and my daughter. Now, I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to be spontaneous. Maybe we'll go to the park. Maybe we'll go to a museum. Maybe we'll play a, a board game. I really don't know. That part is going to be spontaneous. But I have planned for that time. And it's a big three-hour block, right, for fun. Now, why is this so important? Because I can tell you what I will not be doing with that time. I will not be on Facebook. I will not be checking email. I will not be taking phone calls at that time. That is why we have to plan our time ahead. And so the idea of, oh, this is too rigid. This is, you know, I don't know if I can do this. Look, do you want to be indistractable or not, right? We live in this age where we have so much choice. We have so many potential options, so many things to do with our time that if we don't plan our time, somebody is going to plan that time for us because we have this magical vision of, oh, you know, I want to leave my time spontaneous. I want to be spontaneous so that I can, you know, write or I can meditate or I can take long walks. That's not going to happen. You know what you're going to do. You're going to watch TV. You're going to read the news. You're going to scroll, scroll Twitter, right? You're going to check email. You're going to regret what you do with that time unless you plan for it in advance. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Right. Impulsiveness and spontaneity are close, but not identical. But I, I understand what you're saying. The issue of spontaneity is less likely to be, it's a beautiful day on a Tuesday afternoon, I'm going to leave my office and go for a walk. Um, then I'll check Facebook and see what's happening there. So right. the idea, I, I understand. Yeah, the idea is to help you live according sure. to your values. That's the idea here. And so if you like those kind of things and you want to put time in your day to be spontaneous, I, I think that's wonderful. I mean, if you want to plan three hours to go on a walk or to meditate or to paint or do whatever you want, do it. I'm not saying only plan the work stuff, plan the fun stuff too. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Um. Let's get back to interruptions for a minute, because um, interruptions, and not just digital ones, of course, are part of life. They're annoying, and they can even be dangerous. Tell, tell us about the astonishing study you mentioned of interruptions that 
resulted in dramatically reduced hospital medication errors. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is such a great uh, piece of research I uncovered here. So um, it, the, the third step, so we talked about the first two steps. Step one is to master the internal trigger. Step two is to make time for traction. Step number three is to hack back the external triggers. So the external triggers, again, are these pings and dings and rings, all of these things in our outside world that can pull us towards traction or distraction. So in many industries, it turns out that, that, uh, that these external triggers can actually be a matter of life and death. And uh, there's one particular industry that I, that I highlight where these external triggers uh, really did cause some, some, some pretty severe damage to people's lives. And, and this industry uh, is the healthcare industry, where it's estimated that about 200,000 Americans every year are harmed by prescription mistakes. So this occurs inside hospitals when nurses, doctors, other healthcare practitioners give patients the wrong medication or the wrong dosage of medication. 200,000 Americans every year. It's an astonishing number because this is a completely preventable human error. And you know, most hospitals in America just think, okay, well, what are you going to do? It's a, it's a fact of life, cost of doing business. Until a group of nurses at UCSF decided to figure out what was really going on. And they wanted to discover why were there so many mistakes happening? And what they uncovered was that the reason that all of these mistakes were occurring was distraction. What was happening when these nurses were dosing out medication, they were being interrupted, not by their cell phones, but by their colleagues, right? Other nurses would tap them on the shoulder and ask for something in the middle of their medication rounds. And when this was happening, they were making mistakes. And so the metaphor here is, is very apt for knowledge workers because the tragedy here is that these, these nurses didn't realize that the mistakes were happening until it was too late. They thought they were doing a great job. It was only later in the day when they discovered, oh my goodness, look, do, do you know what you did? And, the, and this, these, this had, of course, very tragic consequences for people, people dying or being severely injured because they were given the wrong medication. And, and that's what happens to us as, as knowledge workers. We think we're doing a great job, right? We think we're, we're, we're at our best. And we don't realize how much better we could be at our job if we got rid of all these mistakes that we don't even realize that we're making because of distraction. And so the, the, there's a happy ending to this story. The happy ending is that these nurses uncovered a way to decrease medication mistakes by 88%. They almost completely eliminated the problem. 88% reduction in prescription mistakes. And the solution was not some fancy million dollar app. It wasn't some expensive training program. The solution was cheap plastic vests. Vests that the nurses would wear that were these bright red color and said on the back, it said, do not disturb drug round in progress. And that notification, that, that message hacked back the external trigger of their colleagues interrupting them because it was, you know, it was impossible to ignore this sign that the nurse was wearing that said, leave me alone. I need to concentrate right now. So how do we adopt this in our own lives for us who work, you know, people who work in, in uh, offices for knowledge workers? Well, the, the, the equivalent is what we call the open floor plan office that many of us today work in these open floor plan offices that are incredible at saving companies loads of money because they don't have to give everyone their own office, 
but they are hotbeds of distraction because they facilitate your colleague coming over and saying, hey, did you hear that bit of gossip? Or, hey, can I just talk to you for a quick sec? Or I just need this one thing. Those are just as much of a pernicious distraction as the pings and dings on your phone. But we don't think of that, right? Because it's an older, it's not technology. So it's, it's old, it's not a new thing and we, we ignore it. But it turns out to be a very prevalent source of distraction. So what do we do about it? Well, every copy of my book, Indistractable, comes with a screen sign. And the screen sign, the way this works, you pull it, it's on a piece of cardstock. You pull it out of the book, you fold it into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor. And this screen sign says, I'm indistractable at the moment, please come back later. And so it sends a very clear message to your colleagues that right now you need time to think, you need time to concentrate, please come back later. And it's a very effective way to send a message to your colleagues to, to just leave you alone for a little bit. Now, I'm not saying you should do this all day long, but when you do plan that time in your time box calendar for focused work, and everyone needs it, right? Unless your job is working in a call center and all you do is pick up calls all day. If you need time to think, to concentrate for your job, for your livelihood, that time has to be planned and you have to protect that time with some kind of way to hack back that time. It sounds like it would really work. And the nurse's experience is extraordinary. You seldom get a behavioral response, a re behavioral result of an experiment that gives you an 88% success rate. So that's, that's a marvelous one. But, but why do we check our email so often? Why is that a problem? Yeah, so so email is kind of the mother of habit forming technology. <laughs> I think it's actually, uh, you know, it's designed, and and I know this from my first book, Hooked, about you know being an industry insider, helping companies design habit forming products for good habits. I can see why why checking email is such a can be such a bad habit for people. Uh, at its core, it's because it involves what's called a variable reward. Uh, variable reward was first studied by B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. He took these pigeons and he put them in a little box and he would give them a food pellet every time they pecked at a disc. And so if the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would get a food pellet. That was the reward. And as long as the, as the pigeon was hungry, the pigeon had to be hungry for this experiment to work, but as long as the pigeon was hungry, they would get that reward every single time. This is called operant conditioning. But, but then something funny happened, actually. So Skinner began to run out of these food pellets one day. He didn't have enough of them one day. And so he couldn't afford to give these pigeons a food pellet every time. He could only afford to do it once in a while. And so sometimes a pigeon would peck at the disc, and they would get no reward, no food pellet. The next time they would peck at the disc, they would get a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times a pigeon pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And so this is what makes slot machines so enticing. It's what makes sports fun to watch. It's what makes a movie interesting or a book something you want to keep reading because you don't know what's going to happen next, right? Variability is at the core of all of these habit-forming experiences. Email is a terrific example of that. Email is full of variability. Who is writing you? What are they going to say in the message? Is it good news? Is it bad news? It is just as much of a, of a habit-forming experience as Skinner giving those pigeons the food pellets. Now, the solution to this, and I talk about this extensively in the book, this is, you know, email tends to be what people complain most about in terms of, of a distracting technology these days. So there's a whole chapter to de devoted to how can we hack back email. And there, it turns out that where we waste the most time on email, and time studies have confirmed this, 
is not the checking of email or the replying to email. It's the rechecking of email. It's opening it, reading it, putting it away, opening it, reading it, putting away, opening it, reading it, putting away. We spend so much time doing that. We don't even realize how much time we waste doing that. And so I give you techniques to only need to touch to each email twice. Once when we open it, once when we respond to it, and I'll show you exactly how to do that in the book. Uh, people who have read the book and, and have, have uh, provided advanced praise have told me that it provides them, with, it reduces the time they spent on email by up to 90%, 9-0. So there's some really effective techniques there. Wow. Uh, you know, this may be my own peculiarity, but uh, in reading uh, the chapter on hacking back your smartphone, what came to mind was the uh, the popular books about decluttering your house. I'm sure you're familiar with at least some of them there. They're very, very popular. Uh, would you say that your anti-distraction ideas are aimed at the same issue, reducing clutter only in cyberspace rather than in physical space? Sure, I think that's part of it. Um, I, I think that you know, distraction is anything that pulls you away from what you want to do with your time. And so there's a component to, of, of that in terms of procrastination. So procrastination is, is, can be a distraction, uh, but not all procrastination is distraction. So for example, I'm sorry, not all distraction is procrastination. So when I was with my daughter, I wasn't procrastinating, I was distracted. Uh, and the same goes for, I think, digital clutter on our desktop, for example, or on our phone. We have all of these, what we call external triggers, all of these folders and images and files and apps and notifications. All of those things are external triggers that can lead us off track. So, you know, how many times, for example, this used to happen to me all the time, I would say, what time is it? I stopped wearing a wristwatch, so I would look at my phone to see what time it is. And then when I looked at my phone, oh, look, there's three notifications. Let me just check those real quick. 10 minutes later, what time is it? I forgot. Exactly. I forgot the question. And the same goes in our desktop. The same goes to our physical space. There is uh, definitely an analog here around removing those external triggers that don't serve you. Now, by the way, not ex all external triggers are bad. If your phone sends you a notification and says, hey, now it's time for that lunch with your friend. Now it's time to go do that exercise you promised yourself. Now it's time to meditate, to pray, whatever it might be, using an app or a service that you plan to use with intent ahead of time, then those external triggers can be very helpful to you. The idea here is to ask yourself this Marie Kondo-like question, which is, is this trigger serving me or am I serving it? There's no reason to get news alerts every time something terrible happens in the world. Why, why do we need that? Why, really? I mean, unless you're in a journalist, perhaps, do you really need to know every time CNN or BBC or whoever pings and dings you? Why do we need that all day? <laughs> Check it on your schedule, not on their schedule. Why do we need to know about every Facebook notification? That's unnecessary. Turns out two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. Can we really complain that Zuckerberg is addicting us and hijacking our brains and we haven't even taken 10 minutes to turn off those stupid notification settings. It takes seconds. And so it's a very, so that's kindergarten stuff. Of course we should do that. And I tell you in the book how to do that. It's not very hard to do, but we just need to do that kind of stuff to make sure that we can use these devices uh, according to our schedule, not according to the app makers. And, and you're also making a point in different ways that traction is what you want to do it sounds like it's usually one thing at a time. 
and distraction is pulling you away from those things. But you also talk about the difference between multitasking, multi-channeling, or cross-modal attention. So how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So this, this there's kind of uh, another. I turn over a lot of apple carts in this book, as you as you yeah. read. <laughs> I, I like it. I like overturning conventional. Yeah. Oh, good. Me too. I I love those kind of insights. And so you know, one of the myths out there is that you can't multitask. Mm-hmm. That's not exactly true. <laughs> it turns out we can multitask as long as we do what's called multi-channel multitasking. And of course, this is pretty obvious when I tell you what I mean by this. You know, you can listen to a podcast while you're taking a walk. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's multitasking. And so what I encourage people to do is to actually you can you can overlap some of the domains of your life. For example, uh the 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 me domain of taking care of yourself, your personal health while having a business meeting. So what if you took a meeting with a colleague as a walking meeting? Steve Jobs used to do this all the time. He would, you know, walk around the the Apple campus while having a meeting with a colleague. Okay? Maybe maybe next time you try something like that or maybe you take a phone call while you're on a walk. So you're exercising while you're you're having a business meeting. Uh, when I'm in the gym, I'm listening to content. So uh, for you know one of the the problems that I had was going down this vortex of of internet content. You know, I love to read. I'm an author, and so I love to read. But you know, the New York Times is designed to be just as engaging, if not addictive, as Facebook. And I know because I have worked for the New York Times. <laughs> we designed that app, that experience, to get you hooked to read as much news as possible. And so what do, what do they do? They put all of these news stories at, in your face to get you to keep clicking them. And they're all written with clickbaity headlines to get you to keep reading yeah. and reading and reading. Now, is there anything wrong with reading the news? No, it's wonderful as long as you do it on your schedule and according to your values. So I don't read the news online. I use an app called Pocket, it's totally free, that every time I see an article online that I want to read, I don't read it in my browser, I save it to Pocket, and then the only time I can read those articles is in the gym. Now you say, well, how do you read while you're in the gym? Well, I couldn't do that. That's multitasking by, uh, on the same channel, right? If I need the visual channel of, of using my eyes to lift weights or to look at the treadmill and so I don't fall off, I can't read a book at the same time, clearly but I can use a different channel. What other channels do I have at my disposal? Well, what about the auditory channel? So while I'm lifting weights, this pocket article, it's amazing that this technology does this, it reads your articles to you. It's amazing. It has a beautiful voice that you can understand very clearly what, what you know the, the article's being read. And so that's what's called multi-channel multitasking. I can do something with my body while I'm listening uh, through my ears. So I, I couldn't listen to, you know, one podcast in one ear and another podcast in the other ear. That wouldn't work because that's on the same channel. But you can definitely, definitely use multi-channel multitasking to your advantage. Yes. And actually, that's also an old idea. If you've ever gone into a lecture hall and seen a third of the people listening while they knit or crochet or do needlework, they are multitasking, but it's completely different channels. And it may even be facilitating their attention because their hands are busy. So, yes, I, I think that's a great idea. You, you moved it to the technological realm, and it's an important one. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. A lot of these techniques, you know, I don't like the latest research. I like the old research apply to the latest right. problems right. <laughs> because you're much more likely to get solid research. That's not uh, overturned <laughs> yeah, later next on. Week. As long right. as you use the, exactly. Exactly. Your, your chapter on the role of identity in, uh, in behavior, shed light on the popularity of identity politics today, which is a big issue. Uh, Talk about the study results that asked one group, how important is it to vote? And the other, how important is it to be a voter? And what that says. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's some fascinating research around uh, how identity can shape our behaviors. And so this wraps up the fourth of the of the four steps to becoming indistractable. Step one is to master uh, our internal triggers. Step two is to make time for traction. Step three is to hack back the external triggers. The the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And so there are different types of pacts. One of them is what we call an identity pact. An identity pact is when we use a moniker something that we use to describe ourselves to help us stay on track. So just like a religious Jew does not say, ooh, should I have bacon today or not? No, they are Jewish. They keep kosher. It is who they are. Uh, Just like a vegetarian doesn't say, oh, I wonder if I should have that hamburger. No, they are a vegetarian. That is who they are. The moniker helps keep them on track. And so the same goes, there was a, a, a wonderful study done on the noun form of being a voter versus voting. So they did this study where they called up potential voters and they said, are you a voter versus are you going to vote? And it turns out that the people who said, I am a voter versus the ones who said, I am going to vote were five times more likely to actually go vote just because they had that mindset of that is who I am. That is part of my identity. And this is why my book is is called Indistractable. It's because that is our new identity. That is our new moniker. I want people to stand up and proudly say, I am the kind of person who lives with personal integrity. I'm not the kind of person who constantly replies to email every 30 seconds or who is a slave to their distractions. No, I live with personal integrity. I do what it is I say I'm going to do. I am indistractable. That's great. Well, Nir, we've taken up a lot of your time. We could keep going. But before we go, tell us what you're working on now. So right now I'm I'm uh, really in this mode of of sharing with the world what took me five years to research and write this book Indistractable. So that's that's my sole focus right now. And then at some point I'll I'll find if there's another problem in my life that needs uh, solving and someone hasn't tackled uh, to my satisfaction. But I, I don't know exactly what that's going to be quite yet. Well, that sounds great. I'll keep my eye out to see what happens. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, and thanks to our researcher Bela Kasikov. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure.